Well, by now, many of these names should be all had to use. Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah. These are the three leaders under whom the Israelites came back to rebuild the temple. Uh, Haggai and Zechariah were the two prophets that preached, especially during the early stages. And today we want to finish this little summer trip through Israel's imagined adventure by looking at the prophet Malachi. Approximately 100 years had passed since the time of Zerubbabel's great prophecies about the coming of Messiah and the future glory of this temple being great. But things were still the same. Israel was still under captivity and so slowly a a certain skepticism had begun to build into their attitudes. Where is this God who is supposed to be showing up? How come we who are obeying God are still under judgment and those who seem to be not worshipping the living God, are prospering and they are the ones who are ruling over us. And this attitude of skepticism slowly poisoned their worship. And their worship life was characterized by just a formalism and a ritual and it had really become a burden for them and we'll see that in a minute. Not only that, when they left the worship services and their conversations with people, that was marked by cynicism, you know. Here is a God who seems to punish good and reward evil. Uh, What is the point in serving a God like this? And so skepticism, cynicism and formalism characterized the community of God's people. And as I said, this was the last chapter of the Old Testament. This is how the people of God were left. And so Malachi comes to speak to them and this attitude spills over into that attitude to Malachi. Every time he says something, they say, ah, come on, prove it to us, Malachi. How come you're giving us that charge? There was no, no receptivity at all to the message of God. And the opening words of Malachi kind of set the tone of the book. In two ways. First of all, God begins by saying, I have loved you, says the Lord. Of course, their immediate response is, but you ask, how have you loved us? What do you mean you love us? Look at the situation around us. How can you say you love us, God, when we're in so many difficulties? And God's response is, was not Esau Jacob's brother? The Lord said, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau have I hated. And I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Now, we looked at all this when we studied the book of Romans a year ago. He goes way back in the history. And Esau and Jacob were... Two brothers and Esau was in fact the firstborn. And God said, but Jacob, you, I, I've chosen you, I've loved you. God is basically saying to them, you want to know how I've loved you? Just the very fact that I have chosen you when you didn't deserve it. And I've blessed you and you are my people and I'm in this covenant relationship with you. That is the greatest demonstration of my love for you. Not only that, I brought you back. I exiled you, but I brought you back from exile. The temple has been rebuilt. Nehemiah has come and rebuilt the walls. In sharp contrast to this, when the people of Esau, the country of Edom, when they tried to rebuild their own places, I didn't let them do it, he said. That, that's the greatest mark of my love for you. So why this skepticism? Why this cynicism? Why this formalism in my worship? So that, that's the, it's a difficult message because it's a hard, hardened people that he's talking to. Skeptics and cynics are not easy people to preach to. Especially when everything you say is met by skepticism and cynicism. And so God reminds them at the very beginning, this is still coming from a heart of somebody who has loved you and who still loves you. And as a whole worship service so far has reminded us of the fact that our God loves us. And so he begins to speak to the people and he just charges both the priests and the people. The first person he challenges with are the priests. And their problem, he says, that you have despised my name and you have defiled my altar. How were they doing it? They were doing it by allowing the people to put that which was blind and lame and unacceptable on the altar. You see, part of, their, part of the responsibility of the Jewish priests was to also examine the sacrifices to see if they met God's requirements. But worship had become such a boring thing for them. They said, ah, what's the point? I don't have the time. Just go through with the motion. Put something on the altar. The irony of it was, the priests not only administered the worship, they also ate from the sacrifices. 
And they were complaining that the meat was tough. Now, can you get the irony of it? They lower the standards so the people can put junk on the altar, and then they complain to God that they're having to live off junk. No wonder he went after the priest. He said, you have defiled my altar, and you have dishonored my name. And he said to them, if that's the kind of worship you want to give to me, he literally says in chapter 1, shut the doors, cancel the worship service, just go home. Just go home. I'm not interested in this because you are telegraphing to the people all around me, the all around the other nations, among whom I want to be glorified, that's what you think of me. So please cancel the worship service and go home. And to the priests he says, if you want things to change, you better set your hearts from this day to honor my name. Now the problem with the people, the sin that he primarily charges them with, and you'll see why these two things are linked together, because they're not obviously connected in our way of thinking, was the people, many of them, were being unfaithful to their wives that they'd been married to for a long, long time. They are called the wives of their youth, and were basically divorcing them to remarry younger, more beautiful women, presumably, and that among the nations that lived there who were not part of Israel, God's covenant community. And so God charges them with what he calls breaking faith or breaking covenant with your wives. And then he says, you, you're weeping and wailing at the altar and you think I'm going to listen to you? When you are violating the sacred covenant of marriage and you are entering into contracts with people who are outside the covenant community that are not part of my blessing, don't think weeping and wailing at the altar is going to impress me. Go keep your covenants with your, with your wives and stop entering into these relationships that I have not sanctified. So that's the fundamental sin of the priests and the fundamental sin of the people. And then he addresses their attitude. He says, you accuse me of injustice. You say, you say where's the God of justice? He's punishing, seems to be punishing good and he seems to be rewarding evil. You saying, where am I? He said, I'm going to come. The messenger of the covenant is going to come. But when he comes, it's not going to be the nations that he's going to punish. He's going to start with you, your people. And he's going to start with the priests. He's going to purify the priests. And even then, even the judgment is not destructive. Even the judgment is for cleansing. He says, I will cleanse and purify the priests so they will then offer acceptable offerings to me. And he also challenges them. He says, return to me. Start bringing the whole tithe. They'd stop giving to God as well. Not only was their worship sloppy, they stopped giving the tithes that God had said because their whole problem was, what's the point giving to God? He's not giving us back anything. Look at the condition of our life. We are not a blessed people, so why give? And so their worship had become both disobedient as well as formal. Now the amazing thing is, in the midst of all this skeptical, cynical majority whose worship had become formal and dishonoring to God, there was a godly minority. There was a minority of people who honored God's name and who encouraged one another in holy conversations. And God says to them, in the end of the book, I am listening. I am listening. I am hearing your conversation and I will bless you. And with that, the book draws to a close with the last words of the Old Testament. Now, those are important words for us to remember, to read. For 1400 years, they had been hearing the prophets. From Moses to Elijah to Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Amos, Nahum, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah. Now, for 400 years, the voice of God was about to grow silent until John the Baptist would come charging out of the desert. These were the last prophetic words in 400 years worthwhile listening to. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. 
Now, this is more than just a, dom- a promise of domestic harmony. That is too small a theme for the last words of the Old Testament. What he's really talking about the fathers, the hearts of the fathers, is the hearts of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs of the nation. For all of their shortcomings and all of their weaknesses, and they had many of them, he said their life with God was one of adventure, vitality. They were on the move. There was excitement. There was discovery. There was movement. He said that you guys, after 1400 years of listening to my prophets, your worship ought to be that much more vital, that much more adventurous. Instead, you become a skeptical, cynical, formally worshipping community. What has gone wrong? But just like the opening words of the book were words of love, the closing words of the book are, but I'm coming to change your hearts. (laughs) The messenger of the covenant will come and he will change your hearts. The saddest part of it is there's no indication that Israel listened to this. In the 400 years of silence, by the time of Jesus, the skepticism of the people had hardened into the, and the formalism had hardened into the outward religion of the Pharisees. And the skepticism had hardened into the anti-supernaturalist viewpoint of the Sadducees. And if you read the Gospels, you will find that Jesus' harshest words were not for the sinners, were not for the prostitutes, were not for the tax collectors, whom the people despised. His harshest words was for the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Formalism and skepticism and cynicism were what Jesus went after. Well, what about us? We're on the other side of the cross. The messenger of the covenant has come. We now know that the full greater glory of the temple has been fulfilled in the person of Jesus and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. Yes, all too often, sadly, skepticism, cynicism and formalism can very much be a part of our lives today as well. And so I want to just take the rest of this message and the larger portion of this message to, to look at Malachi's message for you and me today where these are very real dangers. See, if you read through the book of Malachi, and it only takes about 12 minutes to read it, and I've given you some exercises in the study guide, pick them up. You will find two concepts recurring continually throughout Malachi. One is the concept of God's great name. Twelve times he talks about my name, the greatness of my name that needs to be honored. And ten times he talks about covenants or equivalent terms. God's name can be honored or despised. Covenants can be broken or kept. That's the issue. You see, today, you and I live in exactly those same two covenantal relationships. We are in a covenant relationship with God and we are in a covenantal relationship with one another. In the ancient Near East to which the biblical Hebrews belonged, they understood covenants. Covenants were agreements that were shaped by words, ratified by ritual, and set in the context of relationships. And loyalty was a huge factor. In fact, if you broke covenants, you were shamed publicly by an entire community. Whether it was a land deal, or whether it was a marriage deal, whatever it was. What has happened today, though, is that we have changed from covenantal thinking to contractual thinking. Where the issue is not relationships. Well, they're still framed with words, but they're all hammered out in legalese. Because the issue is not relationships, but technicalities, legal technicalities. To make sure someone doesn't weasel out. It is based on a presumption of sin. Not of honesty and commitment. The saddest part is. We have smuggled that mindset. Into these two relationships. So we've turned our relationship with God. Into a contractual approach. It says you do this to me. I'll do this to you. Or I'll try my best to keep you happy. So please don't be too angry with me. Whichever end of that spectrum you're at. 
And we do the same thing in church. The covenantal relationship with the community of God. You please me as a church, I'll show up. You don't please me, I'm out of here. And so the real message of Malachi to you and me today is are we going to live by covenants or by contracts in these two areas? And that's what I want to focus on. First of all, I want to focus on our covenantal relationship with God. And the opening message of the book is I have loved you, says God. And so our fundamental response is to, is to worship Him. People praising Him for His unchanging, undeserved love in saving us. You know, we're so used to thinking of uh, salvation as something that we did for God. But if you would only pause to think for a moment. How many things had to happen that were outside your control in order for you to even hear the gospel, let alone respond to it? Let me give you my own story. Some of you have heard it, some of you haven't. I grew up in North India. In the 60s, where I was, 1950s, where I was born in the 60s, North India was a complete spiritual wilderness. Any Christianity had a foothold in the southern part. Also, I was a South Indian Brahmin from the highest religious caste, and therefore the most unlikely person in one sense to hear the gospel and then to understand it and then to respond to it. My father and Sham's father... Uh, my friend Ravi, good friend Ravi, his father and I, my father both worked for the federal government. So we grew up in the same housing complex. Now his family were nominal Christians. And so I would, just that alone wouldn't have made me hear the gospel. Because Ravi wasn't a Christian either. Now at this point, his, uh, Sham's parents made a decision that was going to immensely affect us. We knew nothing about that. They moved their two daughters from a public school to a private Christian school, which was run by a nominal Christian. So it was a convent. And anybody who was a nominal Christian had to show up to a Youth for Christ Bible Club. And because both the girls could sing, they were asked to sing at a Youth for Christ rally. And at the end of that rally, Sham came back and told Ravi uh, about this. He wasn't interested, I wasn't, until they told us they had some wonderful food to eat after that. So we decided we were going to show up for the next rally. And during the meeting, we made fun of the preacher. We laughed at the singers. When the offering plate came by, we wondered whether we should take some money out of it instead of put it in. Yeah, I'm sure God was laughing too. He was probably sitting there saying, these two guys haven't any idea what I have planned for them both. You know? <laughs> anyway, simultaneously, while all this was going on, again, completely unknown to us, the Youth for Christ director in Delhi was meeting with a Canadian missionary named John Tabe, sharing his burden. He said, God has been putting in my heart to start a ministry to English-speaking Indian people. Who? Me. That's the category that I fell up. But I knew nothing about it at that time. Anyway, November 1962, early December rolled along and uh, the church that Ravi's family used to attend, I didn't go to church, I wasn't a Christian, well, I just decided to show up for this Christmas Eve service. And there was a mime going on at that time, you know, there's a little uh, nativity scene out there using real bodies but no one moving. Yeah. They ran out of Joseph's that night. And so they asked me whether I would stand in. You know? okay. So I did. <laughs> little did I know how serious that decision was going to be. Because that night... All of the people who were involved in that, in the choir that was singing, plus the mime. And only those people were invited to the home of this Canadian missionary. There I was introduced to this Indian director of Youth for Christ and he invited me to this ministry club that was just starting. And that's where I heard the gospel and responded. I want to ask you a question. How many things in that story had to happen that were completely outside my control to even get me to the point of listening to the gospel? Hey, listen folks. When you look around at you and say, I don't see any blessing in my life. God is so distant. I want to tell you something. The very fact that you are a Christ follower is the single greatest demonstration of the fact that God loves you. 
And you need to reflect and think about it and worship his great and holy name because you have been loved, undeserved, with an unconditional love, showered by that grace and that majesty that we were singing about earlier. Others of you, the details have not been the same. The families you were born in may have been influential. But did you have any choice over that? Not at all. Your parents could have gone another direction altogether. And then priests. Look at what it says about the priest. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge and from his mouth men should seek instruction because he's the messenger of the Lord Almighty. But you have turned from the way and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. And a critically important part of this covenantal relationship with God has to do with those of us who are leaders in the church. I'm speaking primarily to myself, pastors, fellow elders. Our job is to know and understand God and His Word so well that our lips preserve that knowledge and when people come and seek for that knowledge, we ought to be able to communicate that to them. And one of the only ways you're going to do this is if during the week you set apart time to honor His name. Do you spend any time at all as leaders during the week to allow something of the truth of God's Word to touch your heart so when you show up at the corporate worship services and somebody needs help, that they are seeking for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, wisdom, perspective, that you are able to speak it? Do you come prepared, expecting God to use you that way? And when that happens, is that a delightful thing or is it a chore that you would rather unload onto somebody else? So leaders setting their hearts to honor his name, preserving knowledge and teaching the whole truth. That's another important part of living in covenant. It's a covenant with Levi. And then people, people, what is the question for you? Do you see corporate worship as your highest priority? And do you offer him your best rather than your leftovers? Now I'm talking just about money. I'll come to this in a minute. Israel's worship telegraphed to everybody around them that their God wasn't worth troubling about very much. What opinion about Jesus does your worship telegraph to people around you? Do you see these corporate gatherings as the single most important thing you could do with your life? And if you think that's an overstatement, let me remind you that when history has reached its conclusion, when there will be no more need for George to go anywhere, when there will be no more need for any evangelism, when petitionary prayer will have been finished because every tear has been wiped away from our eyes, there's only one thing that will go on and on forever, and that's worship. Gathering around this lamb, singing, Worthy is the Lamb. That's why I keep saying to you, each of these public services are rehearsals for eternity. Do you see this? Or do you say, Ah, I don't feel like going to church today. I'm not talking about specific situations, you know. Special celebrations, anniversaries. I'm not talking about those kinds of things. Uh, generally speaking, is this a choice, decision you have to make every week? Or is it settled? Because it is the most important thing for you to gather with the people of God to worship. And when you come, do you come expecting to receive? Just like the priests have to come expecting to give. Do you come expecting to receive? Do you believe God is going to speak to you those words of wisdom and knowledge? Are you coming hungry for that? Do you see the first part of the service as just a preliminary so you can waltz in at 11.30 because that's when the sermon starts or 9.30 in this or 10 o'clock in this service? Or, or do you see everything as carefully put together by hopefully people who have prepared their hearts as well to bring you past the outer courts where we've lived our whole week's life 
to gradually bring us into that holy place so that this holy ground that Karen reminded us of will in fact become like holy ground by the end. Sometimes it takes an entire worship service for us to begin worshipping. That's okay, you know, that's what a worship service is supposed to be. It's supposed to send you out as worshippers, even though you came in all frustrated and tired. So do you come? Or do you just come whenever you feel like in a worship service? And those of us who are involved in ministry, you teach children's class, you teach Bible studies, you do other kinds of service, you put the, these cups together, you clean, whatever you do. And you'll be hearing about some other opportunity to serve in those practical ways. Do you, how do you prepare your lessons? Do you work all week long to give God the best? Or do you scratch out your little lesson on the back of a serviette at 10.30 on Saturday night because anything else or anything will do? If you have to find a replacement, do you find a replacement soon enough so that they can do an excellent job? Or do you say to them, ah, it's just babysitting, just put a video and get it over with. How do you serve? Listen, God is not impressed with leftovers. And then when it comes to the money part, of it, do you give me a leftover? One of the things that Malachi said was, you're robbing God, yet you rob me. How do you? And there's the skepticism again. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You're under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. And it may not, it almost never is just material blessing. Although for some people, God multiplies their material ability to give more. But... The Beatitudes are all blessings too. We learned that earlier on the Sermon on the Mount. He might give you humility. He might give you a, a mournful heart. He might give you a hunger and thirst for righteousness. He might give you mercy. He might give you the ability to forgive people. He might give you freedom in your spirit from the love of things. He gives you all kinds of blessings. He says, test me. But you're robbing me. As I said, God's not pleased with leftovers. So these are the three primary responsibilities of this vertical covenant. People praising him for his unchanging, undeserved love in saving us. Leaders setting their hearts to honor his name, preserving knowledge and teaching the whole truth. And people seeing corporate worship as their highest priority and offering their best, not their leftovers. Listen, this is what God says about leftovers. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, when you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. You see, the, the local governors had the right to expect certain things from them. And what these people were doing was, they were daring to give to God what they wouldn't dream of giving to their bosses. Would he be pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. He is not interested in leftovers. Better to not give him anything than give him leftovers. You need to think about what that might mean for us. Alright, that's the first part. What about that second dimension? Covenantal relationship with one another. You see, they're exactly the same thing. Just as our worship of God will communicate to people around us what we think of God, how we relate to one another in the body of Christ also communicates to people what we think of God because we bear the name Christian. And how we treat one another, how we live our lives before them, directly reflects upon the God that we claim to worship. And one of the most foundational covenantal relationships is marriage. And that's why he talked. That's why he effortlessly moves from covenantal relationship with God to covenantal relationship with one another, specifically challenging the people with breaking faith. Many years ago, some friends of ours were eating in a restaurant close by, and it happened to be around Christmas time. 
And they saw all these posters that kids had painted. So they started asking the waiters, what is all this about? So I guess they had had kids draw things and put them up there. And most of the Christmas themes had to do with Santa Claus. And, and so the waitress told our friends a conversation they had with some of these kids. Well, what do you find most meaningful about Christmas? And many of them, of course, mentioned Santa Claus. And so they asked one child, what do you find most, what is most meaningful to you about Santa Claus? You know what that child said? He is still married to Mrs. Santa Claus. That's what children are crying out for. And Malachi would completely agree. This is what he says in chapter 2, verse 15. Has not the Lord made them one? Going back to Genesis 2. In flesh and spirit they are his. And why one? Because he is seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit. And do not break faith with the wife of your youth. We need to desperately recover that conviction in our lives. And I say this at every wedding that I officiate. The vows that we make in a marriage are not the terms of a contract that you can back out of if your partner doesn't come through with their part of the bargain. Except for very, very specific violations of God's commandments. No, they are the terms of a binding covenant before God and you are called to loyalty to your spouse no matter how difficult it can be at certain times. And he says, guard your spirit. Why do we have to guard our spirit? Because all around us, we live in a prevailing milieu where the contractual idea of marriage is prevalent. In the water cooler conversations at work, to the, to the news broadcasts, through the media and television and the popular books and the advice of your friends and neighbors, that's the view that's propagated. And it is slowly undermining and weakening the fabric of our marriages if we are not guarding our spirit, so that if our marriage is ever put to the test, we find ourselves responding contractually, not covenantly. And that's why he says, guard your spirit, guard your spirit. So that's one critical dimension of covenantal relationship with one another. Seeing marriage as a binding permanent covenant thus enabling us to propagate the faith through godly offspring. But important though marriage is, it is a subset of an even more important covenant community, and that is the church community. We are, we are linked to one another in a covenantal relationship in the local church. And I mean local church. Don't tell me I love... I hear people periodically say, well, I love the universal church. I just can't stand the local church. I'm sorry Jesus didn't give you that option. That's like somebody saying, well, I love all women in general. I don't love anyone in particular to marry her. No, no, no. When we get married and we are faithful in a covenantal relationship, when you love one woman or one man the way you should, you love all women the way they should. You love all men the way they should. Because you treat them all differently. Because you're married to one right now. Exactly the same thing is true. And, and by the way, when it comes to marriage, you don't, you don't, some do maybe, because they're still looking for the perfect person that doesn't exist. But eventually you get to the point of, well, you're not perfect, I'm not perfect, but I like you enough, I'm committed enough to the kind of thing that you're committed enough, and together we can make these things work, and we're going to make them work, and we're going to commit to one another for life. That's what you do. Exactly the same thing ought to be true in a local church community. There are no perfect churches. But what you decide is, I've, been, I've hung around in this church long enough that I'm going to let everybody know that I'm committed to this church. You know, common law relationships don't work. And more, the ones that I've known, it's almost always the women that want to get married. Correctly so. And they keep asking the men, when are we going to get married? When are we going to get married? Their response is, well, I'm committed to you. And what they're really saying is, well, then prove it, buddy. Tell everybody else you're committed to. The same thing is true. There are no common law relationships in the body of Christ. We are intended to put our roots down in one local church and live in such a way that everybody knows we are committed, warts and all, to that particular local church.
So that, so that when the going gets tough in a local church, we're not just going to get up and quit. And just join some other church. People do that in marriages, they do that in church. Those are all contractual understandings. Covenantal understanding of community says, both in marriages and in church. And I am so, I was overwhelmed by the fact that of the 44 years that I've been a Christian, God has given me the privilege of living 36 of them in this local church. And I've been married 36 years, and I've been in this church 36 years. He has given me the amazing privilege of living out both of these covenants for exactly the same honor, with one woman and with one church. If God should give you that privilege, I would recommend it to you strongly. And more than that, it's not just hanging around, it's in a relationship of hope. He says, we pledge ourselves clearly and visibly to one local church and build relationships of mutual encouragement. Remember that other group, those who listen to God? Then those who, this is the minority, the godly minority in the midst of the skeptical majority. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other and the Lord listened and heard and a scroll of remembrance was written in His presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored His name. And that verb translated honors is to think deeply about God. Just like the skeptical majority was thinking about God and saying, where is He? Where is this God of justice? How come he's punishing good and not rewarding good and punish and instead seem to be rewarding evil? Not any point worshipping him. What's the point? They thought about the same God and they came to the opposite conclusion. Here's the basic difference between the two. The, the skeptical majority started with circumstances, drew conclusions about God, and it, resulted, it always results in skeptical, cynical, formal worship. You know why? Because life is difficult. Circumstances in most of our lives for a good bit of the time, are difficult. And if you start with those, you will always come to the wrong conclusion about God, and you will always almost become skeptical, cynical, and formal. The godly minority started with God, they drew conclusions about their circumstances, and that resulted in reverent, trusting worship. So here's my question. So after these worship services are over, what, do you have, what happens? Who do you hang around with? What kind of conversations do you have afterwards? Immediately quenching any work of the Spirit or fueling that flame? The phrase that came to my mind was lingering over glory. We sang earlier on, the glory of the Lord is present. And that glory can touch you in many ways in a worship service. Maybe most of the time it isn't a sermon, although it can be, and I hope it is. But it's not just that. It could be a sermon, it could be a passage of scripture that was read, it could be somebody's prayer, it could be a testimony, it could be the words of a song, it could be the time of silence, it could be eating the bread and drinking the wine. Anyway, there could be glimpses of glory. Do you allow the aftertaste of that glory to linger in your mouth? Just like you might savor good food. What happens when you go after here for lunch, whether at home or restaurants or whatever? Do you continue to savor the glory that you experience or does it just get completely quenched with cold water and something else takes over? So that's the message from Malachi. Are we going to live by covenants or by contracts in these two critical relationships? as we come to the table of the Lord right now. It's so appropriate, because I said this message, hard message, began with an assurance of love. And this is his demonstration of his love for us. This is the majesty, this is the grace, that he gave his life for you and for me. And we're asked to examine ourselves. The Bible tells us to examine our hearts as we come to the table of the Lord. So I want to leave six questions with you for reflection. They all come right out of Malachi. 
First of all, do we see our salvation as an unarguable proof of his covenantal love for us and worship him thankfully for this gift? Rehearse, rehearse the elements that led to your conversion, your becoming who you are. See how much of it you had nothing to do with and was the gift of God in your life. Leaders, do we come with our lips and our hearts full of his word, ready to teach those who seek instruction and understanding? Or is it a burden we would rather unload onto somebody else? People, do we worship him with our leftovers in any one of the areas? Or do we give him our best in what we do? Now the horizontal covenant. Do we see marriage as a permanent commitment within which to propagate the faith by raising godly offspring? Or is, or is there a back door that I can escape and quit when the thing get going gets tough? Are we in a common law or committed relationship with Rexdale Alliance Church? Whether this commitment is formalized or informalized is a different matter. The question is, have you sent unmistakable signals through the way you live in this community that you're committed to this church and the welfare of this church is on your heart and you're a contributing part of the process? Or is it a convenience relationship and you can back out of it anytime you feel like it? And then who do you hang around with? I'm not talking now about unchurched people, okay? We should be hanging around with skeptics and cynics and all of those people. They should be seeing in us something that will undo their skepticism and cynicism and bring back hope. But I'm talking about Christians. Do you hang around with the skeptical cynics who are continuously throwing cold water on anything that is holy, optimistic, vibrant? Or do you hang around with people who fuel your faith? Who encourage you? How do you respond when a skeptical cynic starts talking to you? Do you just quickly get drawn into that conversation? Do you say, yeah, I'll give you five more reasons. Or do you say, hey, listen, that's one way of looking at it, but if you thought about this, here's what I feel about it. Think about it. That's a vibrant encouragement. 